Hey, well, listen, if you're visiting for the very first time, we hope that you feel welcome here at IBC. And if you're looking for a church home, we'd love to think that maybe you found it today, or at least the home that you would come to again if you're back on the mountain. We're really glad that you're with us if you're visiting first time today. And uh, we're in a study series looking at the life of Elijah, if you have not been with us before. And so are you ready to dive back in, church? All right, so I want to take your Bible then and join me in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 21 this morning is where I'll invite you to, to start with me, 1 Kings 21. If you need a Bible today, raise your hand. We keep some in the back just in case you got out of the, the door without yours, um, and we'll be glad to share one of those copies of God's Word with you. There's a little note page in your bulletin, and if you wouldn't mind grabbing that, it looks like this, and that will be of some help perhaps along the way. And we take up this morning the next part of our unfolding story of one of really the most remarkable figures in the Old Testament, our man Elijah. We're told in the New Testament in James chapter 5 verse 17 that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And what that means is that as we join him on this amazing roller coaster ride with God called life, that we're going to learn more about ourselves as we study his life how to live the Christian life with all of its ups and downs and its, its highs and its lows. We'll be able to do that better more God, in more God-honoring ways because we've spent some time with a man who has a nature just like ours and has found his way onto the pages of God's Word. More important than that, as we share Elijah's life story together, we really learn more about our God. And in the end, that is really what it's all about. Yeah, church? It's all about learning more about our God and our relationship with him. Now, do you remember where we were when we left Elijah last time, last Sunday? Remember where we were? We had run, just by way of refresher, we had run with him for 300 miles, right? Run with him into the Sinai Desert, and we hung out with him in what was to be the lowest and most desperate time of his life. He is so discouraged in chapter 19 that he wants to give up and simply die. And God meets him in this desert of the soul season of his life, just like he meets us when we slide into those places as well. And he shows Elijah, if you recall, by wind, by earthquake, by fire, and by a gentle whisper that he is still God, that he's still in control, still very much devoted to the nation of Israel, though it has turned its back on him and that he still plan, has plans for Elijah. There's things that God still wants Elijah to do. Elijah might have given up on himself, but God has not given up on him. And so we saw at the end of chapter 19 how God recommissioned Elijah to go and to anoint a new king uh, over Syria, and then to anoint a guy named Jehu. You want to remember that name for today. Jehu to be the next king in Israel, and he anointed a man named Elisha to be his successor as prophet of God's people. And so as chapter 19 closes, Elijah, in obedience to God's instruction, finds Elisha, and the two will now work together for the rest of Elijah's life. They will be companions in ministry, and eventually Elijah will hand the mantle of his prophetic role over to Elisha. Last week, uh, a dear lady came up to me at the end of service, and she says, Oh, I am so glad that we got Elijah through that really rough patch. And then she said, I can't wait until next week when we get to send him to heaven in a fiery chariot. 
And uh, she was genuinely excited about that thought. And, and I had to say to her, well, you know, I can't wait for that moment in Elijah's story either when we send him to heaven in a fiery chariot. But before we can go there, uh, we have some unfinished business to take care of first. Business that we're going to take care of here today with two persons who have figured very prominently in Elijah's story from the moment that we first met him. Who are those two persons? Ahab and Jezebel, the exceedingly wicked king and queen of Israel who have led God's people so far away from him into idol worship, who have worked so much evil and and brought so much death and destruction to their time. We need to spend some time with them because Elijah's life is so intertwined with theirs that we really can't share the end of his story until we have shared the end of their story first. Now, if you have been a Christian for very long, I am quite sure that there has crept into your thoughts many times a question, the answer to which has proven elusive for you. We look around us, church, we look around us, we observe our world, and it begins to dawn on us with an uncomfortable consistency that the ungodly, even the outright evil and wicked in the world, the selfish, the greedy, the hostile, the lawless, they seem to be the ones who often prosper, right? They seem to prosper. They seem to succeed. They seem to enjoy the good life. They step on and they use and they abuse the innocent and the unsuspecting. They steal, they cheat, they maim, they even murder. And yet it seems they do so often without consequence. The wicked prosper almost as though God blessed that while the God-fearing who desire more than anything else to serve the Lord with an obedient heart and an uncompromising integrity and they seem to struggle. They seem to to have the setbacks, the trouble, the pain. And we ask this question, where is the justice of God? You ever ask the question? You ever wonder about that? The wicked prosper, the upright and the godly suffer. And we, we, we say, why? Why, why? why is that? Church family, if we've ever asked that question, ever wondered about that, the prospering of evil and the suffering of the righteous We're in good company. Listen to the psalmist who writing 3,000 years ago in Psalm 10 asks this question. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You're not the first one that ever asked the question, right? The psalmist beat us to it. The psalm continues this way. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. And under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Verse 12. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. 
What's the psalmist doing here? What is he doing? He's asking, why, God, do you allow this to happen? The wicked to prosper, the righteous to suffer. Surely the kind of persons that the psalmist is referring to in his psalm would find their real-life counterparts in the unbelievably wicked king and queen of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab is a man whose heart and character we have come to know rather well in our study of Elijah, a man whose very name conjures up images of evil and a bold, brazen rejection of God. And he's, he's the king of the nation whose God is supposed to be Yahweh Elohim. But by his life and by his practices, he is the very opposite of, of a man who believes in God. His godless behavior, his sinful pursuits follow him like his shadow his whole life long. And his marriage to Jezebel, the daughter of a foreign king, just compounds his life of evil. You remember that it was Jezebel who brought the false god Baal uh, into her, from her homeland into Sidon, from in Sidon into the nation of Israel. Ahab may have been the official head of the nation, church family, but Jezebel most certainly was the neck that turned the head wherever she wanted it to go. She really ruled the roost. She is in, in, in a very, very short time, she manages to displace Yahweh Elohim in the hearts of the people and replace him with her God, her small God of, named Baal. In chapter 18, she issues a, a standing order that all the prophets of God are to be executed on the spot. She imports a small army of her priests from her homeland into Israel to, to run the spiritual life of the nation. It is she who issues that death threat against Elijah after Mount Carmel, if you recall, that sent him running into the desert and into that really dark time in his life. While Jezebel and Ahab are today two names that, that literally live in reproach in Israel's past because they were so evil, in Elijah's day, their lives of wickedness had not only seen them prosper and grow, but they had become more and more powerful. The more wicked they were, the more powerful they became. And so with very little effort, were we to step into Elijah's sandals this morning or Elisha's sandals or, or any one of the other 7,000 who were still faithful to God in Israel, as we learned last time, we could easily hear any one of them saying, boy, why doesn't God do something about those two? They prosper, they increase with every year that passes. Where's the justice in this? The God-honoring suffer while they go on their merry way, sinning and even attacking the things of God with impunity and seemingly without penalty. It's not fair. It's unjust. Why? All of that is the framework then for what we want to tackle today. And it brings us to chapter 20, first of all, which for uh, sake of time, we're not going to read this morning, but it's where we're going to start our story of Ahab and Jezebel and the uh, outcome of their lives. You might want to read chapter 20 a little bit later, but let me just summarize what happens in this rather long chapter. Ahab and Israel are attacked by the king of Syria who has gathered 32 other kings uh, with him. They come up against Israel, and we think, aha, 
The time has come. Ahab is about to pay his dues for all of his evil, and God is going to use Syria to do that. It's about time. But that's not what happens if you read the chapter. As a matter of fact, Ahab and Israel rout the Syrians with God's help. With God's help, they rout the Syrians. Well, then another year passes, and this same Syrian king gathers together an even greater army to once again go up against Israel. And we say, aha, it'll be this time that God takes Ahab out. But it doesn't happen. In fact, Israel kills 100,000 Syrian soldiers in one day by the delivering hand of God. The wicked prosper, or so it seems. Chapter 21, that's where we are now. And this, we are going to hang out here for just a little bit. Ahab and Jezebel, after that second victory over the Syrians, they head for the royal palace in Jezreel. This was their favorite hangout spot. Ahab had built a, a huge palace there in Jezreel. And now another of their wicked injustices begins to unfold. Verse 1, chapter 21. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Verse 3, but Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. We'll stop right there for a second. Ahab is standing at his palace window and he, he looks out on a beautiful vineyard that happens to belong to his neighbor. And uh, he thinks to himself, man, what a great place for a garden. Fresh veggies every day, homegrown herbs. Ah, I, can't, I can't wait. He presents the owner Naboth with a legitimate, fair offer for his property, but Naboth refuses the offer. Not because the king has been kind of been lowballing it, not because Naboth's trying to hold out for more money, he just does, or, or that he doesn't want to move, it has nothing to do with that. As far as Naboth is concerned, it wouldn't matter how much the king offered him for his vineyard, he would say no. Verse 3 The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. In other words, Ahab, God's law will not allow me to make this sale. And Naboth's right. In Numbers chapter 36, verse 7, it says this very plainly, Thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe, for the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Now we read this, and it says a couple of things about Naboth. For one thing, he knew the word of God in a time when God's word and law had in large measure been forgotten in Israel amidst the worship of this pagan god, Baal. But Naboth holds on to the word of God. The other thing it tells us is that Naboth was obedient to God. He believed in God and would probably be counted among the 7,000 that God had said to Elijah back in chapter 19 were not worshipers of Baal. They had not bowed down to him. They were true. So he's part of this godly minority, an upright godly man who wishes to do the right thing before God. Now Naboth doesn't realize how much his refusal has wounded Ahab. Verse 4. 
And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. The king's pride has been bruised. He, his want has been denied. His position has, as, as the king has not caused a, a commoner to cave in. That's what he was used to, but it didn't happen. And so what does he do? Well, he acts like any other three- or four-year-old that you know. Right? That's what happens and, and, and when, when they get what they don't want. Well, this is, this is Ahab. Out shoots his lower lip. He storms off to his bedroom. He slams the door, climbs into bed, turns his face to the wall, and refuses to see anybody or eat anything. I mean, it's all rather disgusting, isn't it? I mean, it's just really how embarrassing, how shameful for a grown man, a soldier, and, and a king to act this way. His, his actions really confirm what you and I already know, and that is the possessions and material wealth and lots of money don't bring peace or contentment to the heart. Riches and material things never satisfy, and Ahab had all of that in abundance, but it wasn't enough. He wants more. But what he wants, he can't have. At this point, the whole thing would probably have just ended if it was not for Jezebel. Verse 5, but Jezebel, his wife, came into him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, and church family, you need to hear this next line with a really whiny, pouty voice. I won't try to reproduce that, but just know that this is how it sounds. Whiny, pouty, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if I please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. That's what he said to me, Jezebel. And Jezebel, verse 7, and Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? In other words, hey, buster, are you the king of Israel or not? That's, that's the Westcott paraphrase of verse 7. Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now Jezebel could care less about this plot of ground or the garden idea. Naboth had done far more than just refuse to sell. He had said no to the king. And that would not be tolerated. She loved power. She craved power. She lived for power. Naboth had, in his honor of God and in honor of God's word, struck a blow to Jezebel that for her was, was no different than he had, if he had tried to strike her with his fist. She's furious with him and very disappointed by her three-year-old husband. Jezebel says to Ahab, I'll get you the land. Cheer up. And with a smile that betrays an evil brilliance, she goes to work. Verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. 
And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Man, she's really something, isn't she? She commits four heinous acts without blinking an eye. First, there's forgery. She takes Ahab's seal of kingship. She writes letters in his name to the officials of the city. Second, she incites two scoundrels, no doubt having paid them off, I would guess, incites them to commit perjury, to tell lies. Naboth is put up in front of the people, falsely accused of cursing God and the king. That's a capital crime, punishable by death. She then commits the most gross form of hypocrisy. She uses God and religion as the cloak for her own evil, as if she cared anything about God. Cursing God, that was nothing to her. But she uses that as a cover-up for her evil. And fourthly, she murders an innocent man. But it's really worse than that, church family, because while we're not told about it here, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, we're told that not only was Naboth stoned to death, but his sons were stoned with him. How many? We don't know. But at least, but more than one, sons plural. And why were they stoned? Well, because they would be heirs to his property, right? And so... So, so Jezebel knows she's got to take them out as well. So they're stoned with their dad. There was most certainly the sound of wailing and crying and great grief in the city of Jezreel that night. A wife and a mother just crying out her heart in that, in that moment of loss. Does Jezebel care? She doesn't care. Verse 14. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. It was all perfectly legal and perfectly wicked or should I say it was it all had the veneer of legality painted over it the people thought that Naboth got what was coming to him though he was innocent and now since Naboth had no heirs because they've all been killed the property reverts to the control of the state and as the head of the state Ahab walked onto his newly acquired vineyard happy and contented at least for the moment Till the next thing comes along that he wants. The wicked prosper yet again. Is there no justice? Is there no right? Is there, is there no vindication of the godly and the righteous? Can the wicked do such evil and not have to answer for it? Where are you, Lord? That's the question we'd be asking if we were in this city. The words of the writer in Psalm 10 become our words. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Church family, you know this, 
but the why in, in God's permitting of the wicked to have times of such unbridled freedom to practice their evil, the why of why God would permit the weak and the innocent to suffer sometimes unto death at the hands of, of evil persons, that is really deep water. When you ask that question, you step into the deep end of God's stuff. The answer for why is rarely ever given to us in this life. True? We're not given that. We're not given the why. It lies within, within the purposes of God that, that we in our locked into time and space and finiteness, we cannot begin to comprehend the whys of God in these arenas. But the answer to why does lie somewhere within the words of God through his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55. It's a passage that you know well. But somewhere in these words, the why of God is given to us. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I have purposes for what I do, God says, but they're way beyond your ability to understand or comprehend. You're locked into time and space, and I am not. And yet to say that, that, that God stands far off or that he hides himself from his people in times of trouble is absolutely not true. Agreed? That's not true. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Jeremiah 23.24, The Lord says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I see it all, he says. Job 34.21, For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There's no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. God knows all about Ahab and Jezebel. He has seen the lifeless bodies of Naboth and his sons. He's heard the, 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 the wails of grief from a wife and a mother. And justice and judgment, they are coming. They are coming. Elijah enters now for the last time into the lives of these two, Ahab and Jezebel. And this time for Elijah, there's none of the fear of the king, none of the, the, the terror that, that Jezebel had struck into his heart when she said, I'm going to take you out within 24 hours. There's none of that that, that sent him into that deep time of, of spiritual darkness in the desert. He's the Elijah of old, once again, determined, unshakable, and resolute. Verse 17, chapter 21. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, You have killed and also taken possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. We read those words and we go, yes, finally, finally, the words of judgment that we thought might never come. 
Ahab is in his new vineyard as Elijah approaches. And look what he says to Elijah. Verse 20. Have you found me, O my enemy? Have you found me? In other words, I thought you were dead or at least that you were long gone from Israel and now here you are again. You're my enemy. I hate you. Elijah answers, yes, I have found you. And thus says the Lord, the God who sees, whose eye is upon the way of every person, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 21 Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam and like the house of Baasha for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. Verse 23, And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Verse 25, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Wow. That's not bedtime story reading for your children, is it? God says Ahab's blood will wet the soil in the very place where Naboth's had been spilled and that he will wipe out every one of Ahab's descendants so that his dynasty and his kingdom are going to be obliterated. And Jezebel, well, God says that he's going to make her into what? Dog food. Oh, man. In some circles, that's called payback, isn't it? Justly deserved. The poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow once wrote a poem with these lines. Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly fine. Yeah. Elijah and Ahab, they part company and they never meet again. Three years pass and none of the words of God spoken through Elijah happen. Nothing happens. And yet, just about the time that Ahab might have begun to think that Elijah's words were empty words and that God wasn't going to do anything, we read in chapter 22 that Israel once again goes to war against the Syrians. Ahab leads his army into the fray, and if you'll find verse 34, here's what we read. But a certain man drew his bow, what are the next two words? At random. Right. Random. Circle those words because there is nothing random about this. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. The one little opening in his defense, this arrow penetrates that with a fatal wound. Verse 37, so the king died and he was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot because he had bled out in his chariot. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. In other words, God had not forgotten his words. His judgments were true. 
And if we quickly run to the right in our Bibles, now leave the, the book of uh, 1 Kings, run into 2 Kings with me for a moment. Let's find chapter 9. Let's keep this story rolling and find out what happens. 2 Kings chapter 9, it's now almost 15 years since Ahab's death, and his son Joram is king. And he's just as wicked as his father. And we just read earlier that Ahab's not supposed to have any of his descendants on the throne. No doubt there were some who were saying that God had not made good on his words through Elijah. Verse 24, chapter 9. And Jehu, you remember Jehu? Remember that name? And Jehu, whom Elijah would anoint to be the new king of Israel, Jehu drew his bow with his full strength, and he shot Joram between the shoulders that the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in his chariot, instantly dead. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to who? Naboth. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. What God says, God does. And what about Jezebel? Well, after taking out Joram, Jehu heads straight for Jezreel. She's at the palace in Jezreel. And Jezebel, the schemer that she is, she realizes that Jehu is about to take over the kingdom. And so what does she do? Well, she stands on her balcony, all dressed up in her very best clothes, and she's going to try to seduce Jehu and win him over. Verse 33. She's at the balcony. He's looking up from on his horse down below. He says, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Does God do what he says? And what becomes of uh, all of the rest of Ahab's blood descendants who might contemplate, take, might contemplate taking the throne of their father? Well, in chapter 10, verse 7, we read that the heads, literally the heads of 70 of Ahab's descendants, his surviving relatives, are delivered to Jehu in baskets. And then they are put on public display. And the final epitaph on Ahab's life reads like this, chapter 10, verse 10. And Jehu says, Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, 
until he left him none remaining. Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly fine. Yeah? Now, brothers and sisters, our time has not been marked this morning by what we might call warm, fuzzy, happy thoughts. Right? This isn't that time. But the story of Elijah would not be well told it would, would not be fully represented if we did not include the crushing and complete end to which God in his justice brings Ahab and Jezebel. They had, with such defiant disregard and wicked intent, led God's people into spiritual idolatry and bankruptcy. And they had, with such cold indifference, put to death the innocent those who loved God and were loyal to him, that to not trace out their end would be to leave the story unfinished. We needed to do this this morning. And this part of Elijah's story provides us with at least two intensely practical truths that we can draw both encouragement from as well as instruction. They are woven into the verses that are near the bottom of your page and really serve, I believe, as the commentary on the lives of Ahab and Naboth for us. The first truth is this. Our God will never, ever be mocked by those who insist on defying him or blowing him off as a God of no consequence. He will never, ever be mocked. Galatians 6 7 and 8 in the New Testament, what do they say? Do not be deceived. Let no one be fooled. Let no one be caught unawares. No one be misuninformed. God is not mocked for whatever one sows. That will he what? That's what he also reaps. It's the law of sowing and reaping. We shared it together when we worked through the book of Galatians. It's true in a farmer's field. It's true in the spiritual field as well. What is sown is what gets reproduced. Verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And are not Jezebel and Ahab the perfect summation of that statement? They sowed evil. They sowed wickedness. They sowed corruption. And in the end, God in his judgment, which was always just, brought them to the place of death and no remembrance of them whatsoever. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We're called here, brothers and sisters, as lovers of the Lord Jesus, followers of Jesus. We are called to sow the good seed. Right? Because the good seed reaps a a wonderful God-honoring harvest. What's the seed? Well, earlier in the book of Galatians, it says the seed is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We call that what? Fruit of the Spirit. We sow the fruit of the Spirit, which is really the character of Jesus. We sow that in our lives. And what does it reap? Well, it reaps the same kind of seed, the same kind of fruit, and ultimately it reaps a harvest of eternal life. The second big takeaway for us from tracing out Ahab and Jezebel's end 
is to be reminded that we do not have to fight our own battles against the wickedness in our world. That we don't have to come up with the avenging part of our story. God says, I will fight for you. You let me have that. You let me have the injustices that you experience, the wickedness that you have to absorb in a world that doesn't love me. You, you let me have that. There will always be a payday someday for those who defy the living God. But it's the Lord that needs to do that, not you and me. Where do we get the truth of that from? Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Here's the instruction to us in a day of evil. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Can we count on that? We can count on that. Brother, sister, we can count on that. And here again is, is the heart of Jesus. He, though God did not seek to defend himself against the evil and wicked mistreatment that he received, which culminated in the cross, he could have called down legions of angels at any moment and righted the wrong that was being perpetrated upon him. But he trusted God to care for him and to avenge him in his own way and in his own time. And he ends up dying for your sin and mine and rising from the dead. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Though it does not always work this way, many times when you and I return kindness for mistreatment, blessing for, cruel, for cruelty, forgiveness for treachery, that brings a conviction, that brings a remorse, the burning coals upon the one who did harm to us and might lead them to a transformed life and through faith in Jesus, eternal life. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? with good, with the good character of Jesus reflected in your life, allowing God to take revenge. That's what we're called to, brothers and sisters, in a day of increasing evil. And the Lord warns us it's only going to get worse, right? It's only going to get worse until Jesus returns. And we are to take comfort in these two truths, that God will never be mocked and God will always care for his own. He will avenge. Can we trust him? Absolutely. And Ahab and Jezebel's story confirms that for us today. You and I can live well for the king as we stay centered on these truths. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Thank you for the truths we've shared together. Thank you, though it was not pleasant to, to walk through the sordid lives of Ahab and Jezebel. It is important that we do that, and you have, you have reminded us today of truths that we really need to keep close to our, 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 our hearts and our thoughts. You will never be mocked, Lord. We know that is true. You will never be mocked. And you will avenge. You will always take care of us. Thank you that we don't have to wonder about that. If there be one or more than one Heavenly Father that's in our room this morning and they have been wronged by someone and they are really struggling with that, they are really struggling to find the forgiveness, to find the peace. They, they're, they're, they're really wanting to, to see justice served and, 
and the wrong righted, I would pray that you would just impress upon those whose hearts are at unrest. Lord, impress upon them the truths that you have shared with us today and bring them peace. And Lord, if we're not in that place today, surely we will be tomorrow or the next day because we live in this world. So thank you that, that, that you have given these gifts to us. May your spirit bring them to mind as we need them. And we will just tell you that we love you, Lord. We're glad that you're our God. And we love you, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, amen and amen.